Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode will be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Professor Moketsi Letsika in this episode. Moketsi is a UNESCO Chair of Open and Distance Learning at UNISA in South Africa and is a hard-working scholarly advocate of open, online and distance education. I'm talking with Professor Moketsi Letsika, who is the UNESCO Chair of Open and Distance Learning at UNISA in South Africa. Professor Letsika has led several large research projects, including one looking at student retention, and he is widely published in the field of open and distance learning. Uh, Professor Letsika, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Mark. Can we start with a brief overview of your career and publications? I have a PhD in, in philosophy of education. I studied philosophy first uh, at a master's level mm. at the University of the Verwaltungsrands in Johannesburg. And then I proceeded to the Institute of Education at the University of London, where I continued to study philosophy, but I completed my, my PhD back at UNISA. And I, I published a lot in, in philosophy. I started as a, a lecturer of philosophy um, in a teacher training college, and then I moved on to the University of Fort Hare. Um, maybe if I could give a brief overview of the University of Fort Hare. The University of Fort Hare is... Um, an historic university that during apartheid in South Africa in the 1940s, 50s and 60s, when education was segregated largely, black people couldn't study in universities that were then known as white privileged. They could be Afrikaans speaking or English speaking. The news of Forte became that beacon of hope that offered high education opportunities for a lot of leaders. Uh, Nelson Mandela studied there, Govan Becky, um, Robert Mugabe, uh, Kenneth Kaunda, Nzumukhesho of Lesotho. This is a university that, that, that basically developed a major pool of the, uh, the nationalist leaders in Southern Africa. And I had the honor and the privilege to teach there for 10 years. I, I, and it's a, it's an historically 99.9% African and mostly students coming from rural and disadvantaged communities. So I was really privileged to be in the grassroots of um, a, a community that is a typical example of the creation of apartheid where need is. And I published a lot in philosophy of education. I was fascinated by kids coming from very poor schools and how we expect them to grasp the complex concepts of philosophy. And that was my struggle. So I published a lot in there. I then left and went to join one of the major science councils uh, in South Africa called the uh, Human Sciences Research Council, where I also had the privilege to conduct large-scale longitudinal studies across the country. Mm. The HSRC prided itself with conducting social science that makes the difference. Our research was mainly intended to provide documents and reports to support the Minister of Education, the Minister of Labor, and the Ministers of Science and Technology to make strategic policy decisions. And, and from then, I moved and transitioned to, to UNISA in 2008. UNISA is, a, is, is an open and e-learning distance unit. So for me, it was a, a complete shock when I come from a contact 
institution to come to an institution where I couldn't meet students. You know, there were lots and lots of 10,000 academics. We are moving around and we are in a university, we are teaching. So I had to learn this thing of what does it mean for people to conduct um, research and have high education qualifications without necessarily meeting lecturers. And we met mm. just like you and I are talking right now. We had to do video calls and podcasts and all this kind of thing. And that was my fascination. Then then I shifted from philosophy and I tried to use philosophy and see how does philosophy then anchor or gets anchored in, in open distance e-learning. And from 2012, I started publishing a lot. Um, and in 2014, I published my first book that I edited. It's called Open Distance Learning in South Africa. And in 2015, I published another book called Open Distance Learning through the philosophy of Ubuntu, um, its mm. humaneness. And, and then I, I co-edited another book with colleagues uh, titled Quality in Open Distance Learning in, in, in Developing Contexts. So I found that I, I began to inject books in, in open distance e-learning at UNISA where most people were simply comfortable just writing journal articles and, and contributing chapters. So I was one of the few people to really generate books. And out of that, um, I found myself basically the leading person in ODL. I traveled around the country, did a lot of podcasts to basically promote ODEL and eventually uh, it occurred to me that one of the key things that a university needs is, is an endowed chair. And when I broached the idea to the then Vice Chancellor, Professor Makanya, he was delighted and he said, well, go ahead. So I come from a consultancy environment. And so I spent the whole year, May 2016, developing this proposal. I actually traveled to Paris. I traveled to Kenya, consulted people in Mauritius. And in August 2017, UNESCO approved my, my proposal and awarded UNISA this endowed UNESCO chair that I'm running. It's a four-year project. And gosh, now I'm, I'm standing in well over 120, 130 publications, including six books that I have under my belt. And yes, here I am. But I come from, I come from a rural community. My fascination with the Eastern Cape was precisely because I grew up in a small kingdom inside South Africa called Lesotho. And I, I, I spent the whole of my life looking after animals, spending time in the mountains. In 1976, I even worked in the mines. I worked in the gold mine for a whole year. So coming from there, it's a it's, it's been a long journey for me. And here I am, holder of the endowed UNESCO chair, full professor, author of many books. It's, it's, it's been um, an exciting journey for me. So there's been a lot of research, a lot of publications, and of course, um, South Africa is well known uh, internationally for its distance education, online education sure. work. Um, is it possible for you to give us some ideas and themes that your work has provided across all of those publications, particularly some of those things that you sense are very pertinent for us today? I have to go back to, to South Africa itself. And when we speak about South Africa, I think it's important that we generate a very robust understanding of this I know every country is complex, but, but South Africa is a very, you know, exceptional country because I think this is one of the few countries that I can speak about in the world where um, racism was, was actually institutionalized. Apartheid was a, a policy in South Africa that formalized segregation, uh, discrimination. Laws were passed that made it illegal for black people to mix with white people. That made it illegal 
for black people to live in certain designated areas, particularly cosmopolitan areas where job opportunities and the rest of opportunities for one to move up the value chain in societies are available. And apartheid made it a point that the majority of the people, I mean, right now, the demographics, statistics of Africa is a major uh, entity that generates stats. If you look at the reports of statistics of Africa, it will show you on a yearly basis, South Africa now has a population of over 60 million people. 80.8% of those are Africans. Yeah. And yet the minority, which is just about 8.8% of white, of Africana background, they rule the country. They they basically made decisions, strategic decisions. They passed laws. They developed policies. They basically assembled privileges among themselves, and they excluded this vast majority of people out of this. So this is the dilemma that we deal with. Now, the history of that continues. People are delighted that 1994 saw South Africa become this magic, miracle, democratic society. Yes, the political freedom was won, but the social, the economic, and the cultural freedoms, they continue to be embedded within um, the white monopoly. Um, mm. And that, and that's the thing. So there's a new phenomenon emerging in South Africa. People are leaving the rural areas because there are no job opportunities. If you travel across all the, the, the towns, you'll be surprised in open areas, there's this mushrooming of shacks, um, informal settlements everywhere. There are new corrugated irons mushrooming. And the hygiene, the sociological issues of those in terms of um, sanitation, roads, electricity, power—all these things are real. But this, this is this is the architecture of apartheid. But when it comes to education, that architecture is 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 very is very sad. In fact, I think in 1953, the apartheid government passed a law called Bantu Education. One of the most notorious statement that that head of state passed um, in parliament was that there is no use giving native as in an African. Um, teaching a native child mathematics when they will not have use of that mathematics in real life. A very presumptuous statement, but that, that presumptuousness continues now. The schools in this country are highly differentiated. The schools in the rural areas where black people are conglomerated, the schools in the black townships, in the informal settlements, are poor schools that were not really established and created to give people opportunities that will equip them with the resources to move up the value chain and be people who are actively in the economy and contribute. There were schools that were intended to keep black people at a lower level. But if you move to the cosmopolitan areas, the, the habitat, the housing, the swimming pools, the tarred roads, and the schools of high quality. I learned that, for example, when I went to study at the University of the Vedvatas Lands, one of the, the exclusive five historically white English-speaking universities. I was, I was overwhelmed. The facilities, the library were like, wow, people study in this kind of universities. You know, when you study in a black university, you ask for a book, it takes you six months for the book to be, to be ordered or to be borrowed from another university. But at Vets, everything was just there. So part of our job is to mediate in that. How do we intervene? When the government came in 1994, some of the biggest narratives at the time were equity, access, 
and equality. How do you create an equitable environment by opening access to education for the majority of people who had been excluded? And that's where distance education comes in. A lot of these universities are very selective. They are exclusive. They say if a younger person has to come and study, let's say UCT, VETS, UKZN, UNESCO, of course, of Natal, you have to have six distinction. How do you get six distinction when you live in a poverty-stricken home and you study in a, a, a rundown school? You understand where there are, there are no facilities, there's no teachers. How do you get distinctions? So that narrative itself means the majority of people will perpetually be excluded from accessing this privileged, prestigious institution. And that's, a, that's the historicity that we have to deal with. So UNISA mm. has come out as a, as a university that looks into all that. What, what I, I, I found admirable about UNISA is it's not a selective institution, but it's an access institution. And there's a whole variety of ways of looking at how do we get people to come into study. And I checked the Open University in the UK. Um, a lot of these universities, for example, do not use recognition of prior learning. So mm -hmm. if, if you didn't get good metric results, you are done for. You will remain perpetually without a higher qualification degree. You will never have an opportunity. But the Open University, uh, Atabasca, Phoenix, the National Open University of Nigeria, UNISA, these are universities that say, the quality of a person need not be based solely on the GCSC, the, the metric as a, as a barometer. There's a whole variety of lifelong learning experiences that a person brings. So we have developed a very refined ways of admitting people. We have what are called Senate discretionary rules of, we look at people, we look at where do you come from, your age, in that period, where have you worked? How do we pull all these experiences together? How do we credit those? How do we find ways in which an, an opportunity justifiable based on the science of looking at what is it that you know? How do we evaluate that? And we have created very credible criteria for measuring that. And that's where RPL, recognition of prior learning, comes in. So I found mm -hmm. UNISA as a very, um, a very, for me, it's a wonderful space to be in because it's a, it's a space having having been having grown up in a rural community, having worked in a rural community as a, as a professor. It's a, a university that I think um, allows me uh, to realize the things I'm passionate about, which is reaching out to the most disadvantaged, the poorest of the poor, to say, you know, if you you create opportunities for people, you are able to lift people out. So do, do online tools uh, play a part in the in the work that you do, Professor Letziker? Yes, we do everything at UNISA online. Um, we have a learning management system called MyUNISA and we use Moodle. We used to use um, a platform called Sakai, which was quite ridiculously inefficient. And now we have embraced Moodle. Almost all institutions, the majority of institutions across the world embrace Moodle. So we use Moodle. Our teaching is done online. Our Teaching materials are embedded online. Students access material online. After the outbreak of COVID-19, um, we have um, just over 400,000 students. And the question was, if the students are going to be at home and they are not going to be um, visiting our, our, our examination centers, how are we going to examine them? And ideas popped up within the institution. Well, we are online, we are using online facilities. Maybe we should design a structure where even exams can be done online. And we went down and developed the criteria, rules, protocol, so people can access the exam paper for a particular period. It prevents cheating or coping. But some universities do have what is called open book exams. So we recognize that even open books, so long as we have the citation and the acknowledgement processes in place. So we are doing that. We do we do videos um, 
we have embraced that. The UNESCO chair, which is what I'm leading, the, the idea is, is to establish and entrench that culture of open distance learning across the colleges. UNISA has 10 colleges. My job is to liaise with the, the, the colleges across so that that culture is embraced. I, I offer support. I don't tell them what to do. They tell me what they need. So my job is to invite people to offer training. But the idea is for people to understand that we, we are living in a world where uh, virtuality and, and, and online learning are the route to go. UNISA is now almost 148 years old, and this is an institution that is considered on the African continent as, as a pioneer of then what used to be known as correspondence learning. Of course, with technology coming in, correspondence changed, and we started, initially we started using the faxes, but now we are using the fourth industrial revolution facilities, digitality. We do Skype, we do Zoom, we do Microsoft Teams. There's a whole variety of things, and that's how we mediate learning. Now, the question, how do we do that in in such an unequal society like South Africa, where where people, uh, many of them, are, are are experiencing what in the late 90s used to be called, I think the term used then was the digital divide. What South Africa has done uh, through the Department of Communication and through the cellular providers like Telcom uh, and Vodacom, and this is something that most people don't acknowledge. South Africa may be rural, but what what these companies have done, uh, led by the Department of Science and Technology, has been to create what are called signal towers all over the place. You can travel across the country. It's, it's, it's rare. There are fewer places where when you travel, you lose signal. Mm. And, and for me, that's key. I was in Rwanda in 2017, um, and I was surprised. Mm. Rwanda is one of the few countries where uh, the cosmopolitan element of it are only found in Kigali, which is the big city, very clean. But the, the rest of Rwanda is very rural and very poor. And yet, signal towers are popping all over in the rural villages. And the Rwandan government and the Department of Education has rolled out a massive cellular technology to mediate learning. So we are saying, we are saying to people, if people don't have money, they cannot access the tools like the, 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 the tablets, iPads, and the laptops. Hey, almost everyone has a phone. Almost everyone sends a text message. Why can't we leverage that use of cellular technology? So UNISA has, I think at some stage, they rolled out a way in which they subsidize the use of cellular telephony as a way of accessing material. So we are exploring multiple ways so that whenever people go, they can access the UNISA system because UNISA has created telecenters. We, we use the word telecenters in rural areas. We are creating uh, internet cafes, telecenters where the UNISA system is accessible. So wherever you go, you can go in there. The signal will allow you to log into the UNISA system and using your phone. So there are many ways in which, um, despite the rurality, despite poverty, the, 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 the imperative to make education available and accessible even to the poorest of the poor, those who are the most rural, is, is not something that is insurmountable. It, it's quite yeah. phenomenal how that infrastructure has taken place. Um, mm. it, it, we're currently mid-2021. Um, COVID-19, of course, has swept the world. There's been a lot of experience with emergency remote teaching. You've also got an international view as to how um, online distance education is taking place. So I'm very interested in your observations about online learning and education at the present time. What, what do you see is going on out there at the moment? What are some of the key <clears throat> themes around the world? 
Well, you, you know, you are asking this question at a, at a most fortunate moment because as a member of the UNESCO family, I, I can share with you a lot of things uh, that are happening at, at the UNESCO level. Uh, I think it was 25th of March last year when the COVID-19 broke out and the world was thrown into total disarray. Nobody knew what was happening. Schools were closing. Everybody else expected parents to suddenly emerge as teachers. It's, it's ridiculous. You know, we send learners and children home and we say learning has to be online. We expect homes to all be these ideal places where every, every home is assumed to have access to uncapped Wi-Fi. That's not the case. But UNESCO, which is what I'm a family of, um, the Director General, uh, Ms. Audrey Ozule, uh, launched the Global Education Consortium. It's a very important initiative because um, UNESCO then recognized, I think at the time, the Director General made an announcement that from the UNESCO Statistics Unit, they had determined that over 1.6 billion learners, whether at school level or at university, had, had been forced to stay at home because institutions had to close because COVID didn't make it possible for people to be together for fear of, of, of spiraling the infections. But UNESCO then recognized that something needs to be done. And I'm very privileged to be a member of the UNESCO family because what, what the Director General and, and the entire UNESCO fraternity did was to say, how do we intervene? How do we mediate? One of the issues that came out very clearly was that we recognize that world cellular providers are global multi-million dollar entities. We are, not, we are not complaining about that. If you have a brilliant idea and you make money out of it, so be it. However, it's, it's important that if you are a successful business person, you need to recognize that you have a responsibility to society. And I think what the Director General did with the, the Global Doctor Consortium was to say, we recognize that while cellular providers, you are making money, but what is your corporate social responsibility to society now that a global crisis has hit? This global crisis makes learning difficult. Make a sacrifice. Corporate social responsibility is a tradition. It's, a, it's something that the world all over recognizes. And to our surprise and delight, the world uh, cellular companies came out and, and they pledged. So the, the project led to a whole supply of gadgets in the most rural community, Cameroon, Botswana, Swaziland, you know, Malawi. The list goes on and on and on. UNESCO was able to reach particularly many African countries that were considered rural and poor. And there was a lot of provision of these gadgets to these countries to support schools. But there was also a leveraging of data to say, let's make data available. In South Africa, we speak about um, the free educational website. They, they zone them and make them freely accessible. Of course, they are subsidized by the departments of education and the Department of Higher Education and Training. But the idea is to say, can we embrace a trend which now goes by the term Open Educational Resources, OER? There, there, there was this global initiative to say, the resources are there. How do we leverage our profits in the form of corporate social responsibility so that we open these resources to make them available for those that can afford so that they can also have opportunities to access the information, the material and land. So the UNESCO initiative was huge. And here in South Africa, there was an opening in terms of making tablets and, and iPads available, but also in making data 
freely available, creating an open access environment so that even those that are deemed poor, they may not be excluded from access. So for me, this is the way the world ought to go. We know we need to move away from the privileged ivory tower exclusivity where opportunities that are supposed to empower members of society are a preserve of the few. When we do that, we, we then perpetuate ongoing socioeconomic inequalities on a global scale. Mm, absolutely. So you saw actually a, quite a large outpouring of altruism uh, as a result yes. of the pandemic coming through. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's, it, it also borders on a, at a philosophical level, it borders on what is normally known as the, the, the philosophy of care. And that, that is uh, Ubuntu, isn't it? I was going to mention it. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, in 2011 to 2014, the National Research Foundation here in South Africa funded me to run a, a, a study that I call the Archaeology of Ubuntu. I borrowed from um, Althusser's book, The Archaeology of Knowledge. Mm. And I ran the study in Namibia, in Botswana, in Lesotho, in Swaziland, in Zambia, in Zimbabwe, and in five provinces. So yes, w when you speak about Ubuntu, I've actually... Yeah, I have a whole array of publications. So, so yes, Ubuntu is exactly about that. Umuntu, umuntu agambantu. It's a Nguni expression. In Sasutu, we say, but it means a person is a person through other persons. Mm. Uh, mm. When we studied English, there was that poem, and no man is an island. Um, a Kenyan theologian and philosopher, John Beatty, wrote almost a similar thing that says, I am because you are, and since you are, therefore I am. Ubuntu is, is, is a philosophy that says we shouldn't just uh, hoard the resources and think only about ourselves because we are not alone in this world. And if we can find an amicable way of sharing the resources so that we can lift others and create an uplifting, empowering um, initiative that that opens up spaces for others also to grow and move up the value chain and enjoy the value of life. That's exactly what we're doing. So you are raising something that I'm very passionate about. Distance learning as an as an access practice falls within that that bigger picture of sharing the resources in ensuring that everyone can have access to the resources and, and benefit from that. Mm, indeed, excellent. Uh, P Professor Letsike, can you tell me about the research you'd most like to see? You, you've done a lot of work in the ODL space, um, but it's yeah. clear that you're doing some very exciting work online as well. What are some of the pivotal research needs that you would like to see met at the moment? We, we, are, we are in a, I think in an era where we're beginning to, to see the inequalities looking at us in the face and they're real. My my passion would be to see the tradition of open educational resources or the trend of open access being supported. I would like to see more research in that sphere because for me, that is, is a space, a platform where I firmly believe if we can finalize it, if we can purify it, if we can clarify it, if we can, as it were, institutionalize it, and make sure that we remove all the barriers to the for-profit issue about production of, of, of intellectual resources. Then we'll be able to open up the floodgates where, you know, access to, to educational resources would be a human right. Yeah. 
Professor Letzke, can we finish with two people you'd recommend as leaders or legends of online learning? Uh, one whose work or perspective is significantly influencing you now, and one who you think otherwise might have an important perspective to share. Um, Professor Paul Gundani mm-hmm. and Dr. Daniel Tau, and I'll explain who they are. They are both work colleagues, and they are both in the field of, of open distance learning. Professor Paul Gundani, I worked with him at Inisa. He was one of the senior professors in the College of Human Sciences, uh, but he's originally from Zimbabwe. And now he's the the vice chancellor of the Zimbabwe Open University. Mm. The other person is is Dr. Daniel Tau, T-A-U. Tau is is, is a word for a lion, so you must be careful how you deal with him. (laughs) And uh, I have a very cordial working relationship with Dr. Tau. Dr. Tau is the vice chancellor of Botswana Open University. Mm. The UNESCO chair um, and the Open University have a very successful um, collaborative research partnership. In fact, one of uh, the university's senior academic has served in the chair, continues to serve, served first as a postdoctoral fellow. And now I'm, I'm planning to appoint her as one of the senior researchers in the UNESCO chair. Um, have you spoken to Miss Janet Lennis? No, I haven't. Uh, Miss Janet Lennis is a very important person in, in, in Southern Africa. She's the CEO, the Chief Executive Officer of the South African Institute of Distance Education, SAIDE, mm. S-A-I-D-E. So yeah. these three people, in my view, are pivotal in the, in the distance e-learning uh, frame. And any one of them, if you were to... Um, lend an interview with them, I can assure you they'll add value to the leaders and legends online learning portal. I have no doubt. <laughs> Professor Letzke, it has been a real privilege talking with you. Uh, I've learned so much from you over the last um, last 20 minutes to half hour of interview. Thank you so much for being a leader and legend of online learning and sharing your perspective. I appreciate it. You can learn more about Professor Letzke and his work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com, to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com. <laughs>